Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady, and for this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host, Matt Scott, and we have a special interview today with Dave Harriton of AEV. Now, Dave is the CEO. He's the founder of AEV, and we had the rare opportunity to sit down with Dave and talk about some really important subjects, which includes payload. It includes OEM, new, these new OEM vehicle capabilities that we're seeing coming out. We talk a lot about midsize versus full-size yeah, Dave is really the Einstein of overlanding. He has really developed a lot of the types of products and levels of aftermarket production quality. So we really have a rare opportunity to talk with him about how he integrates with the OEMs, the lessons that he's learned from working with the OEMs, and how to make premium quality aftermarket components for overland travel. But we really do the deep dive on payload and we, talk, and we talk about a lot of other really important subjects. So please enjoy our conversation with Dave Harriton. And a special thanks to Kuat Racks for their support of this week's podcast. Their new Ibex has landed. It's actually overlanded. This groundbreaking bed rack is effortlessly handling substantial loads both on and off the grid. Constructed from lightweight yet durable aluminum, it boasts a ballistic black powder coat made for all the nature you can throw at it. It's available in six different frame sizes to accommodate most truck models, and it's equipped with telescoping crossbars, numerous T-channels, and a versatile full and half height configuration right out of the box. This is the Ibex from Kuat. It is engineered for adventure. For more details, please visit kuat.com. Kuat, because you will absolutely love this bed rack. So Dave, thanks so much for being back on the podcast with us. For those that are listening, Dave Harriton, we recorded a podcast kind of about his career and life and, and a lot of his learnings around overlanding and his vehicles. We recorded that uh, maybe about a year and a half ago or so. Uh, but we are grateful to have you back on here because we're going to dig deep. We're going to dive deep into some technical topics that I think people will find really interesting. Um, we talk a lot about payload on this podcast. And now say we beat a dead horse on it. <laughs> yeah, but now, now you're going to actually understand the engineering be behind payload and some of the factors that come into the decision about what vehicle you buy and what vehicle it may or what payload it may have from the factory. So Dave, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I'm surprised it's taken that this long to get back to here. <clears throat> well, let's well, let's first talk about how did you get to the podcast today because this is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I flew my husky in from uh, Las Vegas to this morning. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a flying uh, Jeep. Yeah, flying KTM or a flying Jeep. So, and what's the size tires that it has on it? It's got uh, 29s right now. I'll probably upgrade to 31s here next next set. So this is the kind of this is a tail dragger, mm -hmm. and it, if you were describing it earlier, it's based on like a 1940s design of an aircraft. And what what inspired you to to decide to start flying? Uh, you know, it's always been something that uh, interested me. And, you know, since I was a kid, but like everybody, time and money, right? Yeah. And they never seem to coincide. Um, and then I had a buddy who had um, actually my plane. And uh, and he had been taking me for some, you know, backseat rides around Montana. And I, I was, like, pretty blown away. And then at one point he was like, hey, I'm going to buy a new one. Do you want this one? And I was like, yep, 
I didn't even think about it. I was just like, yep, I'll take it. And so then I had a real motivation to, you know, go put the effort and work into getting a license. It was, and a, it was a lot out. of work. It's a lot of work to fly a tail dragger. It's a perishable skill and um, it, it does require some specialized training. Mm. And um, and then, you know, flying in the mountains requires specialized training. So I think, yeah, the last time you were here, you were just finishing up your That's private right. pilot. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So now, you know, 600 hours later, which is a lot in, um, you know, two years. While you're trying to work full time? I do work, yeah, I work full time. And, and design, you know, OEM level quality products. Yeah. I think there was a couple times you and I were texting. I don't know what time in the morning it was, probably around one in the morning. And you were, you had flown for four hours that day. And then you, then you were shifting into Michigan time, you know, because you had to work from like three in the morning until, (laughs) until whenever. Crazy. My day normally starts at 530 with some of the East Coast meetings and, you know, but I go to bed pretty early. So yeah, yeah, it, it. It's a lot of work, but it's so worth it, you know, because I have explored so much on, you know, dual sport bikes, dirt bikes, Jeeps, trucks, um, snowmobiles, you know, I've, I've explored rafting, kayaking, that now when I fly, I can generally put everything below me together. And, uh, you know, I've, I've focused, you know, I've just, I've been in so many places in this country. It's pretty fun to put it all together, at least mm. in the Western U.S. And you were talking in fact, one of your Instagram posts I thought was really cool because it showed your plane and here's a Nemo tent and you just brought your camping gear with you. You landed and camped out for the night. Yeah, I always keep my, uh, my uh, you know, a pretty comfortable, you know, quote unquote survival kit. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, um, the guys from uh, X Overland were out yeah. in the desert and I awesome. flew out there. And, yeah, I spent the night with them and camped around the fire, and that was pretty nice because they had obviously they had an AEV prospector with a four wheel camper, and they had all said the stuff. food. Oh yeah, they had <laughs> food, beer, steaks, everything else. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had a beer. Yeah. Well, and and it's interesting, Dave, because you you were involved in very early on, even before the four wheel drive stuff, with whitewater kayaking, and then you moved into the jeeps, and you've moved into full size, and you've gotten involved. You know, a personal passion in sports cars, and now aircraft. Do you feel like that? That's because it, you it helps you in the creative process. Not only in the yeah, uh, totally, but not only in the creative process, but it also um, you know, I mean, it helps me mentally having something outside of work to focus on. <clears throat> but it also really like you you learn so many things in other facets that you can bring back into work. Mm. Um, you know, whether it's flying and how, how people do certain things, you know, how airplanes are, you know, whether it's maintained or, you know, I mean, you could say everything from like a simple example, be safety wired or something all the way up to, you know, communication skills or packing light, you know, dealing with payload, things like that. I mean, really, or, you know, same on a motorcycle, right? I mean, you've ridden all over. I mean, it, it makes a big difference whether you're light or heavy. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I mean, that weight's one thing, but there's so many things where it just adds to your quiver, you know, when you have all these experiences that you, you can add to your quiver to make truly unique solutions. Yeah, I would think that there's times when you're flying, because it's not like you're on Instagram when you're flying a plane. So you probably you probably are able to let your creative mind wander a bit. Actually, I don't. I mean, and like when I'm flying, I'm tending, you know, I just want to survive, right? So <laughs> I'm like focused, okay. really focused, okay. which, is, which is the kind of the mental. Yeah, I've never been a pilot, so that's interesting to know you. There's not downtime, huh? Yeah, but the focus can be I a mean, brick, too. In other types of flying, there is, you know, a lot of like 
if you're in a corporate jet, I mean, honestly, you get up and you, you know, you, you've, you've already done so much work on the ground and you, you've already entered it into the plane and now you're just managing systems and managing air traffic control and just kind of waiting for your number to be said and then, you know, doing whatever they tell you to do. And it, and it, and you could wander for sure. Um, you know, unless there's emergency when you're flying these bush planes, it's a completely different thing where you're focused, you're pretty much focused all the time on like, um, you know, cause you're not normally going from place to place. I mean, you do, but a lot of times you're like, well, I'm going to go from place to place, but I'm going to land six times in the middle somewhere. And so you're kind of just focused on that. But like I said, for me, it's a, it's a mental distraction that it really requires focus and it almost trains me to, to be able to focus. So when I do sit down at my computer, I can focus on something. Oh, that's interesting. So it's actually fine it helps you fine tune your ability to focus on your work. Yeah, a hundred percent. Oh, that's interesting. So you wanted to talk a little bit about payload. So yeah, the one example that you brought up that I think is worth diving <clears throat> into is that within the midsize truck market, one of the challenges has always been payload. But now we're seeing vehicles like the new um, GMC Canyon or the Colorado from Chevrolet, and they're available in an AEV Bison variant where they have 35-inch tall tires, steel bumpers. You can even get some of them with a winch, boron steel skid plates. They come with a lot of the things that people would normally install from the aftermarket. And so if you were to simply look at the payload number on the door, it, it's a little misleading because you would have to, if you bought, like, let's say, a stock Ranger and you wanted to add all of those things, the Ranger, yes, may have a 1,600-pound payload or a 1,700-pound payload. But by the time you add steel bumpers and winches and everything else. Yeah, and, and, and particularly the products that you're adding to the <clears throat> aftermarket just really aren't considered much for weight. I always feel like, you know, I mean, it's more cardboard-aided design a lot of times. Not that some of those products aren't tough or durable, but, you know, they're yeah. not... They're not, they're not what, optimized for yeah. weight. But I think, you know, I think what you're getting at is if you're going to compare, let's say, the Bison to something else, you do need to say, you know, you're, you're only going to compare it if you were going to add those things. Otherwise, you wouldn't be looking at the Bison. You'd be looking at maybe a ZR2 or a High Country or something. Sure. And so, yeah, if you're looking at... Uh, you know, even a Ranger Raptor or something like that, TRD Pro, you know, that's really more compared to the the stock ZR2 or the High Country. And yeah, it is one of those things where payload is it's just a funny thing. So you really have to compare apples to apples because if you're looking at the Bison, that means you're planning on adding all those things. And if you're going to add all those things to either, you know, any of those other trucks, you have to start subtracting all that weight out. Sure. And And so, you know, if you really look apples to apples, the bison's actually pretty good in terms of payload. And But one of the things I think is worth mentioning is just kind of like where does this payload number come from? You know, because it's a bit nebulous, really. Um, it's not a... There's very few tests on the OE side that um, are required by the government that sets payload. There are some that factor into it, but it's, it's really this big kind of nebulous number that a lot of... A lot of it's the OEs kind of responsible for making up what they feel comfortable with, hmm. because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are kind of responsible um, for you know safety and you know their own warranty and things like that. So, you know, again, when you're comparing one manufacturer to another, one might be more conservative um, than another, right? And so, generally, the larger companies are more conservative than the smaller companies, um, and also 
it, it just kind of depends on what they feel comfortable with. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of factors. I mean, you're, you know, you could be looking at <clears throat> cooling, you know, engine power, braking, braking, and so braking does have some tests. Stability control has some tests that you know you need to pass at at, at gross vehicle at weight, gross vehicle weight right? So there's some things that are kind of you know like standardized, but even even within those, there's a lot of again kind of gray area, right? So it's a really hard number to compare apples to apples. Um, and you might look at something and be like, well, this truck has like literally the exact same axle as the competitor truck, yet the gross vehicle weight rating is lower. And you're yeah. like, well, why is that? And a lot of people think it's like axle related or frame related, but there's more well, to it. No, they're, yeah, they're absolutely axles, frame. I mean, those are just minor. Be- bearing size. Components. Yeah, bearing size. But I mean, like the Chevy and the Ram have essentially the same rear axle, yet they have different numbers. Right. And so you start looking at that and it's, it's a really hard thing to compare apples to apples, but at the end of the day, it comes down to what does that manufacturer feel comfortable with, you know, pass all the government tests and their internal tests. And quite often the manufacturers have their internal tests are stricter. Like when it comes to crash, um, when it comes to braking requirements, there's, there's like a government required test, but almost all the manufacturers tend to try and beat that. And they have like their own internal ratings Mm -hmm. and and you know so um a lot of manufacturers aim to be you know like whatever you could call it like five stars um even though maybe it's only three to pass the government test um a lot of the manufacturers their internal tests are higher but then if they get to something where they're like well we need a little more here then they can you know basically they can go to their leadership and start say hey we want to do this and we want to reduce this down to a four-star rating it's still better than the government requirement but, you know, maybe in consumer reports, we won't get as good a score yeah, here. Yeah, sure. So then it gets, you know, it almost gets into marketing talks. Um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of give and take. And those marketing numbers are really critical because unfortunately, especially with journalists, you know, they're, they're, they're handed a sheet of paper and they're looking at numbers, you know, yeah. and I always think it's funny, like approach angle, you know, 24.1. Well, you know, maybe this truck beats it by 24.2. Yeah. Right. Sure. And like you guys know, like is a consumer, is that ever going to affect a consumer? Never. No. Absolutely not. But all of a sudden it, it ranks this truck higher than this truck. So yeah. a lot of journalists that rewrite press releases. Well, and, Yeah. I mean, that's true. But even, even the marketing teams at the companies, right. They have to have these numbers Yeah. and whether it, it, you know, it's like, I mean, if you put a winch on almost any truck and Jeeps are excluded because of how they're mounted, but like, let's say a typical truck, like a Toyota, a Chevy Bison, you know, a Chevy midsize truck, a full-size truck, you know, whether it's one of our bumpers or an aftermarket bumper, you're almost always reducing the approach angle yeah. just because you have to fit a winch in there and it has to stick out so far. And, mm. you know, that's just kind of a fact. Now, does that make the truck worse off-road? Yeah. Well, no, because you're generally not. putting a better bumper on and a system and, you know, you've got a winch on the front, so it actually makes it better. But does the consumer care that their approach went from 24.1 to, you know, a, a slightly less number? Sure. <clears throat> and, and does it really affect the consumer? No, it doesn't. One thing I also found interesting, because I have talked with a bunch of engineers at the various OEMs about payload, because it's something that we yeah. we feel is important. and. What one of them shared with me is that they will test just like a standard vehicle. So they'll say like maybe the, they're mid-grade. They do all of these tests. And then if there's anything that's above the mid-grade, all they do is just take what the thing, the extra accessories weigh, and they just reduce it off that number yeah. to lower their expenses. <clears throat> Whereas 
I suspect, like especially with the fact that a bison is wider and there's additional considerations around the multimatic suspension, the jounces, all of those things that would help it handle payload better. Maybe, and I don't know if GM does this, but it seems like a lot of them, they'll just take whatever the accessories weigh and they just remove it from that baseline number. Yeah, and so again, I can talk about past programs. So like the, the original Bison, we actually were able to retest and re-rate it at the same number as that generic vehicle, even though it did have more weight. I think we were about 200 pounds heavier. Sure. Um, but we re-ran the test and everything worked out okay. And you're right. So that's a, that's another example of like apples to apples, right? I mean, if you look on paper, a Dodge Ram, or not a Dodge, I'm still call it Dodge, but a Ram single cab, uh, long box diesel is rated for way more than a long wheelbase dually. Yeah. Right? And so you're kind of like, hmm. which one would you rather tow with? Yeah, you know, sure. Of course, you'd much rather tow with the, the dually and have some redundancy there. Uh, but it's not rated as high as the the single cab, you know, uh, shorter wheelbase truck. Because single cabs are awesome. Single cabs are awesome, but <laughs> you know, again, looking at the numbers, <laughs> it's sure. like, what do you want to tow? And it also depends a lot on what you're towing. You know, boats yeah. are boats are totally different than excavators, per se. You know, because of where the weight is. But um, but payload is just one of those things where it's a really it's it's not a clear cut number, you know, and you yeah. kind of look at like the trucks in other markets where the speeds aren't as great, you know, basically rest of the world, right? You can have a little tiny truck that's capable of carrying a ton of payload, yeah, like a literal ton of payload, and it's sure. a little tiny truck with little tiny like almost golf cart axles, and you're like, how does that work? Mm. Well, it's because you know they feel comfortable with it at 35 miles an hour, right? Um, you know, it's a lot different than here in the States where you can tow and you can tow high speeds for long distances. Yeah. If you go through Utah towing a trailer, you can be doing 80 miles an hour. Yeah. Yeah. To the point where, you know, the trailer <clears throat> tires, you know, almost no trailer tires can handle that in the heat. And these trucks are so powerful nowadays, they don't notice it. Right? You yeah. literally can tow, you know, 18, 20,000 pounds at 85 miles an hour and, and way exceed the trailer tire, almost, yeah. almost all trailer tires, right? Well, so in your mind, what are, <clears throat> when you look at the, at the payload, like let's take a midsize, for example, what should people be mindful of around payload? Is, are you, do you care more about where the load is placed or are, you, are there things that make you less concerned around payload? How do you look at it? In general, like there's a good rule of thumb that if you're at 80% of the payload capacity or the gross vehicle weight, if you're at 80%, the vehicle is generally going to perform well. Now, if you took, you know, all that weight and put it way up high, that's not going to perform that well. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, there's common sense, right? If you yeah. keep the weight down low and keep it in the center um, and try and, you know, I always recommend people put their truck on a scale and really see because there's a lot of 7,000 pound Wranglers around. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, just way over, um, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, I can't recommend it, but they work fine. Yeah. Um, they don't drive particularly awesome, but they, you know, they work and yeah. they're probably safe to drive, but you don't know. Um, but especially when you're exceeding it by that much, I mean, yeah. it can really, um, it can really have dramatic results. So, you know, on the Wranglers and the, the smaller trucks, it's really easy to exceed gross vehicle weight payload. Mm -hmm. I mean, because they are relatively low, they don't have a lot of overhead. When you get into the heavier trucks, you have a lot of overhead. And sometimes that's a problem because you can get, I mean, crazy amounts of weight, Matt, you know, yeah. um, 
you know, you can get absolutely crazy amounts of weight. And again, but that 80% rule still kind of translates well, right? Mm. If, you, if you can be at 80% or under of what the truck's rated at, you're going to have a pretty good performing machine. Yeah. So maybe that's more of it is, is trying to strike the balance between safety, technical terrain performance, economy, longevity of the platform. When you start really, really pushing it, that's when you see the bent frames and you see the, yeah. you know, there, I mean, it's pretty shocking recently what I, I mean, there's some heavy vehicles out well, there. We were talking about the earth roamer stuff and they're a 19.5 chassis. And the dirty little secret on those is you now have to pretty much replace the wheel bearings every 30,000 miles because guys are spinning bearings and axles and having big issues and having to upgrade frames because there's a lot of frames that are cracking and they're not following that kind of 80, 20. No. Um, and, and that goes for almost that whole side of the industry. Now yeah. I wouldn't pick on earth in particular, but I, you know, all of those trucks tend to be, you know, there's a lot of things that people don't look at and, um, you know, if you want to talk heavy duty trucks, the, all the manufacturers give you guidance on the cab chassis, how you're supposed to mount something, how you're supposed to um, avoid um, stress risers, which is a, a localized spot in the frame that would really, um, like maybe you have a mount on the frame and you see this a lot with the, um, the like a lot of those bent frame trucks that you see, yeah. you know, that's right where the camper tied in. And so they're picking on that point all the time and they're working it. Um, and those cab chassis trucks, they have hardened, hardened steel frames. Mm. So it's a bit different than, you know, it's, it's totally different than a pickup truck, right? That's another thing. People don't realize cab chassis trucks, they basically share the same cab, but you know, it's a different motor. You know, like you don't think the motors like a Cummins motor is different, but it's different in the, there's actually different hard parts in the motor. The suspension is different. The axles are different. You know, the frames are different. I mean, the cab is the same and that's about it. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times the frames are just straight right out of the channel. cab. Yeah, They're straight and they're C-channel, and but they're hardened, you know, so you don't want to weld on them and you want to really, you know, adhere to those rules. But the problem is those rules are designed for box trucks. They're designed for uh, utility trucks. They're designed for rollbacks. And so when you get into like an off-road camper situation, then you're kind of playing in gray area, right? Um, and so a lot of these companies have tried to you know resolve that but you're right matt the, the big dirty secret is a lot of these trucks if you look at them and you talk to the you know even the journalists they don't really understand quite often that just because a truck had a 19.5 payload or i'm sorry 19.5 gross vehicle weight you know they got it and before they even put their camper on they put 40 inch tires on it yeah. 41 inch tires you know heavy military tires a lot of them um, heavy, heavy wheels. wheels yeah yep so all that should be reducing the payload capacity 230 pounds of rotating mass <laughs> yeah and, an and they drive you know and and, and those, those wheels drive surprisingly well right we just started offering a 5500 and, and we do offer those um tires it's shocking how well they actually drive but you know again as like a rule of thumb if you're going to go from a 34 inch tire to a 40 inch tire what is that you know it's somewhere in the 80 percent um you should be reducing your payload right there by about 80%. So, you know, guess what number that falls in line with? Yeah. Um, you know, and so again, if you can be at 80% of the gross vehicle weight, once you put those tires on, now you're kind of at your limit, but it's yeah. still going to perform well. Yeah. It's pretty amazing how that Pareto principle <clears throat> applies to everything, including payload. Yeah. I mean, 80, <laughs> 20 rule. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a rule of thumb, but I would say if you're going to, you know, if you take your tire size and divide those two numbers, two numbers and you know get your percentage 
that's about where you should be reducing the gross vehicle weight rating. You know, yeah. so the aftermarket, you know, they've got this, they buy this truck, it's got 19.5 on the sticker, they put 41 inch tires on it. And even if they're not selling a truck or they're not selling a camper or something, they're just selling a truck or whatever it might be for utility, they still are advertising 19.5 mm-hmm. and, and it's not, right? It, it shouldn't be. And, and that's something the aftermarket doesn't really, you know, it's kind of like a gray area where they, yeah. you know, they don't, they'll let you think that it still has a 19.5 GVW when really it should be reduced. Like if the, if the OEM was putting 41 inch tires on it, they would be reducing that gross vehicle weight because of, you know, whether it's um, the, the leverage on the axles, you know, and, and a lot of times they do have an, a more offset wheel, which, mm-hmm. you know, stresses wheel your wheel bearings, bearings. Uh, but the axle diameter itself, the drive shaft diameters, I mean, you know, all the way into the transmission, all those gears, I mean, everything is, that's a lot of added leverage. So you really, you know, they were never tested for 41 inch tires. I mean, it's basically like having a huge trailer on all the time. Just, just put the tires on, right? Even the rolling if you put resistance, no everything. On. Yeah. Yeah. And just all the added leverage is the big one. And I know? think that that makes it even more interesting around like the Bison, for example, the fact that it, this midsize truck is coming from the factory with a 35 inch tall tire. Mm-hmm. And it still is close enough to a thousand pounds of payload. If I remember, it's right around a thousand pounds of payload. So <clears throat> the fact that it should be reduced a lot, and the fact that they can keep it as high as they are from the OEM is pretty interesting. Yeah. And again, I can't talk current stuff, but like on the past program, the past Bison, the original Bison, you know, we wanted to do larger tires, right? I mean, everybody's like, oh, you should have put larger tires on. Well, there's reasons we couldn't, yeah. right? And the, on the second gen, we did get that 35-inch tire on there because we were able to do things downstream and then, and early on to enable those. But one of the things that you kind of think about was, like, I remember a, a specific conversation where it was like the transfer case chain didn't have enough torque capacity for a 35-inch tire. Sure. And so we would have had to make the chain wider, which would have meant a new transfer case, and then, then you start getting into these conversations where it's like, okay, um, you know, how much does it cost to retool a transfer case? You know, well, it's not cheap, I can tell you that, right? And then it, it comes down to, well, how many of these trucks are we building? What do we think our failure rate is? How many does that translate into on the warranty side? You know, do we just let them go and, and you know, those 600 people end up, we end up replacing their transfer case? Got right. It. Yeah, I mean, you, you get into conversations like that where it's like, you could do this, but you know, at the end of the day, GM said no. You know, we don't we don't want the headache. We're just gonna, you know, there's and there were other reasons, right, why we couldn't put a bigger tire on. But yeah, it there, you know, it's interesting behind closed doors. It's like, what is that limiting factor? And it may not always be what you think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I'd but, never even considered something. I'm going to say as trivial as that. Yeah, and you wouldn't think like the transfer case chain. Like, yeah. who, who's ever broken a transfer case chain? Yeah. You know, I never have. Yeah, no, and, I haven't for and, sure. And is that something that could be alleviated from, from re-gearing? Because there's, there's so much kind of, <clears throat> at least on the enthusiast side, the thought that once you re-gear your axles for the appropriate size tire, it kind of keeps things all in line. Yeah, it, it does and it doesn't, right? It keeps the engine in its power band. It does help. Um, with some gear strength, but not always, because as you get, you know, lower gear, you're generally getting a smaller pinion. Yeah. You know, you get smaller size on one side yeah. and, and the same goes, you know, it goes all the way upstream. Right. So it's never, you know, and it, it, you know, it could be cooling, right. It could be the cooling issues, but you do get into those conversations where it's okay. What is this going to be? And what's it going to mean for warranty? And what's, yeah. you know, are we going to actually, you know, we can't strand a customer, right. That's, 
that's a no-go. Yeah. You know, can the truck handle more weight? Yeah, it could, but it kind of depends. And, and, and when we're engineering it, we have to say, we have to kind of pick a common denominator and say, well, you know, the person's going to have 600 pounds and it's going to be 24 inches off the floor, right? So when we do our stability control testing, like in a Wrangler, um, you know, I, I remember like doing the Gladiator and I think it was 600 pounds and it was 24 inches off the bed of the, off the floor of the bed, right? So there's like these specific numbers, but, you know, does that mean it's going to work when somebody puts a, you know, a camper in and it's got a very higher center of gravity and they put the roof, it's higher on the roof or whatever it might yeah. be, right? So we're trying to kind of <clears throat> figure out worst case scenario, but not an extreme. I mean, we can't figure out, I mean, there's people who are going to do crazy things all the time and we can't plan for that, Yeah. but we, <laughs> you can do your best. And so we try and do really, you know, realistic worst case scenarios, right? For most consumers. Um, yeah. And because again, like, the name of the game is you never want to strand somebody, you know, and, and cars for the most part these days don't, you know, they might have glitches. They might do this. They might do that, but pretty dang know. reliable. It's pretty rare that they strand anybody. I have never been stranded. Uh, <clears throat> well, that's not true. I broke an axle once and I had to sleep in my truck before I hiked out one time in snow. But, um, but you know, that was my fault too. I was, uh, I, de- I deserved it. <laughs> that, but, you yeah. know, I've never had a truck really stop running on me or do anything yeah. like that. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't either. I mean, like, which is crazy. You think about all the miles we do. I've never, had old stuff like vapor lock, but. Yeah. But then, yeah, it cools down and you restart it yeah. or whatever. And a special thanks to O3 Outdoors for their support of this week's podcast. The world is messy. That's the price every outdoorsman pays for adventure. So when we need to keep things fresh, well, we at O3 Outdoors don't do things halfway. We turn to the same technology NASA used to clean the space station, and we bring it down to our own frontier. You know the smells, sweat, smoke, and fuel, the smells of a proper adventure, the stuff a true outdoorsman knows firsthand. Our technology here at O3 Outdoors eliminates bacteria and odors on gear or in your home and in your vehicles. Our trucker bags allow you to pack, store, and carry your gear, cleaning it the entire time. Our portable Overlander units fit in any vehicle, home, or RV. It's the highest tech brought to the outdoor experience. Keep your gear fresh from one frontier to another. Thanks, O3 Outdoors. And I guess that makes it even more impressive to see a mid-sized truck with 35s because what the decisions and and how strong the base platform must be just to be able to do that yeah absolutely but you know i mean it's funny too there's there's an issue like um with the uh the colorado you know going back to frame strength and and stress risers and you know point loading um the race truck had you know had a uh, a really nice cage built in it Mm -hmm. and they literally bent the frame right where the you know but if you look at it's right where the you know you kind of had it, in hindsight, it was obvious. And, you know, early on, it, it's like, looks great, right? You're like yeah. stiffening one portion and then you get it too stiff, rest. right? And then you repeat it. And I mean, that truck still finished the race, even with a bent frame. Um, but, you, you know, it's the same thing with these big campers. You know, these, like, you see these massive slide in campers. Yeah. I forget some of the name brands. Yeah. Like a, like a Lance, Lance or something I think, like that. Yeah, yeah. Lance is like 5,000 pounds. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're way over a GVW of a 3,500 truck. But, yeah. You, uh, you know, when they, the way they tie them to the frame and the way they rock, and especially you get those frames beaming going down the road, 
and, and then you put a motorcycle on the back or something yep. and it's beaming even more and it just keeps flexing right in one specific point. Mm -hmm. um, so if you, you know, it's kind of interesting. If you ever look online, you can go, I'm sure Ford has it. I know Ram and Chevy do, but you can go to what they call the bodybuilder's guide and you can see actually how to mount to a frame. And so a lot of them will have a wood or plastic, um, it, like a piece in between the, the body that you're putting on and the frame. And at the end, they'll taper it. And so they taper it so that as that frame twists, it's never stressing in one spot. If they just took that wood or plastic isolator and just cut it straight off, it would put all the load right in that one point. And it makes sense. And so eventually it would crack through <clears> the web. Um, so there is a lot of engineering available online that the factories have already done. And I see it you know, in the industrial yeah. side, in the um, telephone equipment bodies, uh, rollbacks. I see that stuff being adhered to. When I get into our industry, in the Overland industry, I don't see it. I see a lot of like um, people take like the Mercedes three-point frames and they think, oh, this, you know, this works on the Mercedes. This should sure. work on a Ford or a Ram or Chevy. And it doesn't, right? Not those, the frames are completely different. The way they <clears throat> flex is completely different. The stress risers are completely different. So, you know, what works on a military truck is putting a lot of stress because, you know, if you have three points, if you look at it from the side, you really only have two and your whole camper's held on two points and it puts a lot of load in the specific places. And then so I do see a lot of companies chasing frame problems. Uh, well, really, how, how really long not any like oversight on this kind of stuff. I mean, no. the RV industry has some, right? There's minimal. like RVIA, yeah, which minimal. is maybe just means it's, you know, <clears throat> they're just keeping it from wood. blowing up. Yeah. Yeah. Propane. Very, very yeah. minimal stuff, but there's, it's still so early. Yeah. And, you know, and, and people are spending a lot of money on these things. They spend a lot of money on there's, you know, there will be some buyer's remorse, right? A lot of people aren't going to say like, Oh, that was a bad decision. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I do have a lot of problems, you know, this, yeah. this broke that broke. A lot um, of people just won't say that they have problems because they're confirmation. So <clears throat> they're confirm. Yeah. Right. It's confirmation bias. They yeah. want to, they want to make sure that, that their, that their big purchase yeah. still looks yeah. good. Yeah, well, I mean, it's human nature. Yeah, of, like course, the, yeah, of course. Like the big expedition stuff we're finally starting to see more of like the international <clears throat> chassis, like what Spencer's doing with a lot of things with yep. Bliss Mobile yep. is kind of the right direction, you know? Yeah, and you know, he's one that, he's got a really nice subframe. Um, you know, there are some there are some things changing, you know, Spencer's got a nice subframe. I've seen what the guys at Truck House are doing. It's yeah. Super nice. Um, and so, you're kind of involved in the Truck House on like a consultant design level? Yeah. We or got, just enthusiastic about it? Uh, both. Yeah. Um, those guys, when I saw what they did, you know, not, not so much with the Toyota, because I was sure. like, how's that going to handle it? <laughs> yeah. and everybody wanted what they built on the Toyota. Yep. It was a good idea. It was a good idea. On a, on a full-size chassis. Yeah. Well, even the Toyota, I thought was a good idea. In, in high, like, if you just look at it on paper, it was a good idea because that space wasn't taken. Right. right. Yeah. The smaller, I can park it in a parking lot. Right. Not a 84 or 111-inch cab yeah. chassis. I mean, it's, it's a small. Yeah, the truck. old Sun Raider that everybody wanted. Sun Raider, yeah. which is yeah. how they got going. Right? Yeah. But when I saw <laughs> the quality of the camper they were building with the carbon and the foam core and the way they were doing it, I was, I'll tell you, I haven't been impressed in our industry was, you know, I haven't been that impressed with anybody really in almost my whole career. I mean, they really know what they're doing with the composites end of it. So, and they're so passionate about it. Yeah. They're great. Anytime I've ever talked to them, those guys are great. Yep. They are. And so High praise. what we did with them is they, they decided, okay, we're going to use your chassis. Cause I approached them. I say, Hey, you know, this camper is awesome, but you should consider a higher chassis. And they were like, it wasn't a hard sell. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they kind of knew, um, after doing it the hard way. Right. And so, 
Um, so then it got into, well, um, you know, um, maybe some consulting on how to, how to mount it and then also how to, uh, we did a lot of the exterior styling. Yeah. Um, it has those like not aerofoils yeah. or, or, or yeah, whatever. To reduce called. the buffeting down the yeah. sides. Um, and just some strength and a lot of crown. It's a really sophisticated surface. It, it, you know, you might look at it and say, oh, it's, you know, it looks like another camper. But when, I'm sure when you see it in person, you're going to see all the crown and the tumble home. And, and it's a really sophisticated surface. Mm done by automotive designers yeah and, sure and so it's it's different than what's in the industry it's subtle but it's different and and, and still looks good yeah and the way they build it you know they're they're actually <clears throat> machining both they're, they're like five axis machining the cnc core or uh, five axis cnc machining the core right so the core is a two inch thick like really highly specialized foam core that they're you know they're packing it between two layers of carbon and it's it ends up being like a giant yeti cooler but i mean there's nobody who would cnc machine all the foam because they're kind of a high-end marine background right yeah 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 yeah. so they're they're doing some interesting things over there and um i've seen some of the the early early parts and it's it's kind of mind-blowing and it looks it looks really good launch date on that yeah, I've talked, I've, 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 I've talked to him a couple times. I've talked to him a couple times, but it, yeah, th- that's that's a hard job. It's gonna it's gonna take twice as long and cost twice as much. It will, but yeah. I think what those guys it's have going job. for them is it's, um, you know, the quality of that shell is is unmatched. Um, I mean, you have somebody like Spencer and the the Bliss Mobile, which I think are unbelievable. Um, different concept, but it's that concept you know, is, it, yeah, you have the asset that you can then move <clears throat> to another truck when it wears it, out. It's totally different. Yep. Yeah. It's totally different. And these guys are going, you know, I, I think Spencer's smallest is with the 84 inch. Yeah. Um, these guys are focusing on two things. One that's interesting. It's a 3,500 because they can do the weight and it's a, um, um, uh, 60 inch cab to axle so it's, a, okay. it's basically a, yeah. a, a two-door long be bed really or four-door long really bed. maneuverable with that yeah it's a high normal, steer axle. normal truck now oh no no it doesn't have the high steer it yeah. doesn't no yeah. so that's the, the disadvantage of the 3500 doesn't have the high steer axle mm-hmm. but it does have the ability to put locking diffs in and they'll be able to do a 5500 which does have the high steer but then you can't do the locking diffs mm-hmm. so it's kind of a it's a trade-off yeah. um, but i think you know and we're doing those 5500 chassis now um, for for both those and guys. And can anybody just buy those? And yeah, yep, hmm. yeah. And that's that's a whole other conversation how that came about. But it, and that's a that's an interesting one too. Um, but it's really interesting on the thirty five hundred because their their camper is so lightweight that they're at that eighty percent rule even with just a thirty five hundred. Wow. And how much water are they gonna have on board? I'm not sure. I think yeah. you know it's like forty gallons. Okay. It's not yeah. it's not like full earth roamer numbers, right. but it's. Um, it's i think it's they're paying attention to weight you could definitely take that a lot more places you know you talk about that beaming thing which is a term that i learned from you scott which you learned that's right from dave that's that's where i learned it from (laughs) like you feel that on these large trucks oh beaming yeah yeah and it's physics right you can never stop it well it's that it's that what is this like weird like wave going through my chassis yep you know it, it's a big limiting factor to where you can take the thing. Which leads me to a question. We're seeing more trucks coming out with rear coil sprung yep. solid axle suspensions. So the the aft component of that frame is now lo- no longer supported by a rear shackle and a leaf sprung, leaf spring. So one of the advantages of the leaf spring is it, 
is putting the the weight onto those two points. What what are your thoughts around the coil sprung rear suspensions? Do you think it's a good thing? Or have they figured out how to make this, the frame strong enough? Yeah. So you know that's that's a, a really interesting thing. Like if you take and I know you know I know Toyota has a coil spring now. But <clears throat> I like to say Ram because I I know that better. But the Ram frame on a let's say a twenty five hundred pickup is so much stiffer than like a thirty five hundred cab chassis. Like a 3500 cab chassis will twist like you won't believe. Got it. Hmm. I mean, so mounting to it for off-road use can, can really be a challenge. On the other hand, you have this really stiff suspension or can be stiff to handle a lot of load, but you can still get good articulation. Right. Whereas a 2500, that frame is is just like monumentally stiffer than a cab chassis. So you could like rigid mount it uh, camper onto a 2500, you know, like Clay's got one, right? Yep. He's got his uh, flatbed and then a four wheel camper and, and you know, he's used it and there's no issues. And that's because, and granted his is a 3500 with air, but even the 3500 pickup frame is is monumentally stiffer than, than a cab chassis frame. And so you don't get a lot of the beaming and, and that has to do with wheelbase too, a yeah. lot of that, but, um, but, you know, you, it just, it puts a lot more load into the suspension and takes it away from the frame, Yeah. but you're right. It only puts it in the one point. Yep. And so, I mean, if you take a look at a Ram 2500 frame. It's really stout. I mean, unbelievably stout and it's engineered for it. And they were able to do some really unique things with geometry on that to make it stable, even though the springs are relatively narrow. Yeah. Um, that truck works well. And, I, and I'm assuming I'm impressed by it. We had a rebel with the rear locker. And the coil sprung rear. The 2500. Yeah, the 2500 just a couple weeks ago. And I got it fully articulated where wheels were off the ground. And the gaps, the bed gap to the body, you couldn't tell that it was twisting. Almost almost imperceptible. Mm -hmm. Which normally full-size trucks, like if you look at a Tremor or whatever, there's a lot of flex. Yeah, yep. So with leaf springs, there's a lot of... of tricks that you can do and yeah you're, you're taking a lot of it up with a spring and a stiffer frame yeah so, uh, i'm guessing that toyota is probably similar yeah um you know we've talked about a lot with other trucks one of the big or gladiator gladiators i worry about i just worry about you see these a lot of big campers on gladiators because they <laughs> they have a 1700 pound payload in certain configurations yeah that's got to be a lot of weight so, and some of that's geometry, right? So Gladiator basically shares a lot of the rear suspension with a 1500 Ram. Mm. Um, in fact, all the, the actual components are, are carryover, uh, but geometry is a little bit different, but they, you know, they were smart when they did the Gladiator. They didn't just take the Wrangler suspension, and put it back there. They, they re-engineered that whole rear suspension. So it can handle some weight. Um, and I don't have a lot of experience with Gladiator with a lot of weight because I've never built one up for myself. Um, so I don't know, but I imagine they were pretty decent. Yeah. It was always something I worry about. Like, I mean, I, I had one the, the only funky thing with the gladiator doing a kind of a camper build is that the front of the bed was attached with like hydraulic mounts. So the, like the, I think it's the back of the cab has, those. is it the back of the cab? Yeah, I thought it was the, the back front of the, of the cab. I, either way it <clears throat> would flex so much. The chassis wasn't flexing. It was actually the, the camper itself would move so much. I had maybe two or three inches of clearance, maybe more, um, between the roof and the AT Summit. And it, if you like sent it over something, it would <laughs> smack. Like the first time it smacked, <laughs> I was like, 
what in the hay? <laughs> yeah. Look. Interesting. Well, that's, that's another, if we go back to that bodybuilder's guide, and granted, there's not one for a gladiator, but all those dimensions are in the bodybuilder guide. So, you know, there should be a three inch gap between the back of the cab and a camper. Mm. You know, same on the roof. Um, they have a lot of those dimensions are, you know, there's, there's got to be eight inches. I think it's eight and a half on a ram, you know, from the top of the tire to the to the top of whatever's above it. Right. Right. And I see a lot of flatbeds that aren't even close to that. Not even close. Um, but it's interesting. There are there's so much free information out there that that can be you know adhered to, or mm. like how to cut the back of the cab out, right? And you don't see hardly anybody in our industry. I don't think has ever read that because you know it clearly states how you're supposed to do it, and I I rarely see it done. You know, like yeah. cause they have those specs for ambulances and things like that. Mm. But there's a there's a wealth of resource on the internet um, with those bodybuilder guides that you know people should try to adhere to. And you've really helped me look at the full-size domestic pickups very different. I mean, when you talked to, just even a few years ago, we were having a conversation about th- like the headroom that they build into those trucks for for handling heat and towing and people that are going to overload them and payload. I mean, it, it definitely changed my view on how durable those trucks are. And then, of course, when we were able to drive them up to Tuk 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 and just, you know, traveling in them, I'm like, this is... I mean, it changed my view on full size for sure. Yeah, they're pretty comfortable. Well, they're not that much bigger, particularly like the Ram stuff, um, even with the quad cab and the short bed, they're only a couple inches bigger than like a Gladiator. You yeah. Know, that yeah. was that was what killed my Gladiator for me as I went to the dealer for service or something, and I parked next to a 2500. And I kind of did a double take as I walked back. I'm like, huh. They were basically the same size. Yeah, and that's true. If you, especially if you look at footprint, you know, the, the silhouette footprint. Yeah. The, the difference is because the Gladiator and Jeeps inherently, you know, they have the tire sticking out. Yeah. The wheels stick out. So, yes, they are the same, you know, quote unquote, or I'll just say approximately Similar. the same width. Yeah. The difference is the body's so much narrower. So when you do get them in off-road situations, yeah. just inherently they're so much better than, you know, a mid-size or a full-size because they're... Yeah, they're tucked in, right? And that's so. what I—that's what I like about it. I mean, as, as I'm trying to decide what is the next vehicle that I want to build, I'm stuck between like wanting to go with a Gladiator because of the capability. Yeah, like but I don't true, think you end up using it when you when when you when you commit to like the camper route with yeah. a Gladiator. I don't know when I, I took that I took that AT4 on Hell's Revenge. Like I wanted I want to do that stuff. Yeah, I like pushing yeah. pushing the yeah, platforms. But- <clears throat> Getting a full size I enjoy it. truck yeah. in those, it, you know, you can, I mean, I've taken full size trucks in all kinds of spots and, you know, you just have to learn to like use the whole trail. Yeah. Um, you know, and they, they generally will go and they'll generally go, you know, unless there's some big hard rock stopping it from fitting. It's going it to go. If it fits, it gets. Yeah. It's just like, you have to learn to use every inch of the trail. Yeah. And so that can, you know, that can get to be a challenge. Um, and the, the, you know, what I find is that the biggest challenge with campers is the height. Yeah. You know, the, to me, like even in my little Jeep camper, the outpost, it's always like the height is the really the only thing that's, that's ever like turned And you've around. even, you even had angles on the sides yeah, so you can yeah, yeah. make and, it a little more. And like when we did the styling for the, uh, truck house, we actually did a rub rail. So you can lean it over in the trees or rocks yeah. into a mm-hmm. easily um, repairable, you know, it's, I mean, it's a steel rail, but e- repairable in terms of like uh, touch up paint. Sure. Um, but it's set up with rub rail so you can 
tip it into stuff and not really worry about it. Um, yeah, it was pretty crazy the stuff I would rub that scout up against. <laughs> like, I, it was a shocking how well it held up to that. It definitely oh, yeah. refra- mm-hmm. it reframed my understanding of the uh, just how appropriate full size trucks are. And also, most of the agencies, the BLM and the Forest Service, they all drive full-size trucks around on those trails. And that's that's true from here to South America, yeah. right? And all the governments are using half half ton or full-size yeah. trucks, yep. you know, from here all the way to South America. So, yeah. it, you generally find that most most places, you know, unless you're really trying to do like Moab type, type trails, right? Um, for the most yeah. part, you know, you can do 85, 90% of any trail yep. with a full-size truck. It's just, you have to learn how to drive it. And then there are disadvantages, but you know, for most people, the, the advantages of having that added headroom of capability and just the general comfort, like when you do get on the highway and you want to go someplace. It's pretty shocking how comfortable they are. Yeah, yeah. you set the cruise at 80 and you've got a thousand pound feet of torque in all these new trucks. I mean, it's pretty mind blowing how easy it is you know, and, and frankly, you know, on a lot of these, you know, like, um, I know the guys at truck house, when they were dealing with their weight numbers, if you really look at their weight, I mean, you can still tow a Mastercraft or something. Yeah. I mean, you can still tow toys and still have the capability because their weight is so low, Yeah, you know, which is pretty awesome. You know, and the truck's not even those there. And now, now you're not looking just at Ram and Tremor from Ford, but now GMC and Chevrolet has their HDs. With a rear locker, you know, they've gotten rid of that G80 and some of the specs, which is a really, I think having a driver-selectable locker is a key thing. Mm -hmm. But then you've also got the only heavy-duty truck with independent front suspension. And they nailed it with having the Multimatic suspension with independent on a truck with, I mean, the one that I was driving, which had all of your stuff on it, mm-hmm. like all the metal bumpers, 35s and everything else, it still had a 2,600 pound payload mm-hmm. and it had all of the stuff on it. Yeah. And I think it can tow 18,000 18, 18, pounds. 18, so yeah. what was interesting to me was because <clears throat> like a Tremor, for example, it's, it's very capable. I, I like the look of the Ford. But it is abusive on the trail when it's not heavily loaded. Yeah. So even if you were to put like a standard camper in the back, it's it's an abusive ride quality. The Ram's a little bit better in stock form. I'm talking about stock vehicles. Yeah. But that the 35-inch tall tires with the Multimatic and the independent front, like the it was actually fun to wheel the GMC. Yeah, and I think you know I think with the 35, if somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the Tire pressure is like max tire pressure. I think is like sixty, yeah, 65, something like that. So you know, if you're not loaded, you can, you know, you can run it less. And I mean, so when you get these bigger tires on and you can run lower pressures, it they instantly become less abusive. And then yeah. you combine that with a Multimatic shock and a little bit of weight in the back, and they're pretty comfortable. And and yeah, that independent suspension definitely has some advantages, you know. And and that's something like people always ask me, which is better, which do I like more, and it's like. They're, they're all good trucks. Yeah. You know, every single one of them is an amazing truck, and they all have good things. And um, it, and there's so few bad things, you just kind of have to pick which one you like and yeah. which one works for your mission better. Yeah. And also just a- acknowledging that you'll hear people complain that, like, a Tremor doesn't come with a front locker. And it's like, it's a 1,000 foot-pounds of torque. Some some buyer <laughs> like 12, is... 1,200 now, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Some buyer is going to get onto the trail they're going to go full lock to the left and they're going to lock that front diff and like 
it is going to explode no matter how big the diff is. (coughs) So that's why they don't do that. They don't put it. And that's why, you know, I mean, besides sales, you know, that's a big advantage of having automatic transmissions is they can reduce that. Yeah. Right. So just because a truck says it has a thousand or twelve hundred, you know, it doesn't mean you get it. You know, so if you're can it adjust even even if you're in four low and does it know the main shaft angle of the steering wheel? Does it? They know everything. Oh, so they could even back it off they to know, make sure. They know how much your passenger weighs. I mean, they, they're, they're sensors for every little thing in that truck, and they're going around on that CAN bus, you know, hundreds of thousands of messages, you know, within, you know, seconds. They know everything at every time. So, yeah, they can they can definitely do things, you know, they could. To preserve I, I don't it. know if they do because I, I haven't, you know, I don't know that particular software, but they can absolutely manage the torque in a number of situations you know if you're in four low four high you if know, locked if not depending locked. what temperatures are um you know horsepower equals heat right horsepower yeah. and btus are one and the same so uh, they can definitely do all that stuff um that's fascinating <laughs> yeah i mean they're gonna they're so gonna they can reduce torque on so many different things um, and, and so it is an advantage for them to have these automatic transmissions because they can start you out in second, for instance. Yeah. Um, they can do any number of things. Yeah, don't they like derate the it. throttle on a lot of the full size trucks in like first gear? Oh yeah. 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 I mean, you know, because otherwise you just smoke those tires. They well, just and, absolutely and, just light them up. You know, these transmissions with the eight speeds or 10 speeds, the, the first gear is generally pretty low. Yeah. It was interesting because I had the, <clears> the, like the stock 2500 and then I had the 2500 Prospector XL immediately after it. And you know that right turn that we have to make? Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's always gravel there. Oh yeah. I could not get the stock 2500 to hook up at all. Like it, it would just sit there and spin. I had, to be, I had to have so much room to get going every time. And the Prospector, I think just maybe a little bit, a little bit bigger tires at the time, you couldn't re-gear them. Just hooked up and I could I could go. <laughs> well, and you have a bigger footprint and you yeah. have softer, you know, lower pressure. Uh, I mean, that stuff, you know, it all makes differences. Yeah. You know, one of the things I see with Ram guys all the time is they'll put a light bar. There's this perfect hole in the front bumper. And in anything 13 or newer, they move the intercooler down there, and that is your intercooler air. You know, and on the on the 12 and earlier trucks, you could put a light bar in this perfect hole in the bumper, and it looks really cool, and it's it's all curved, and it looks really ideal but yeah. i still see it today you know on anything 13 and newer you're basically just reducing your horsepower drastically yeah right and so people don't understand that and and it doesn't really set a warning unless it's really really bad it doesn't set a warning but it just starts degrading power so then of course you know these same guys will go and then they think like, oh this thing needs more power so, so they, they do banks or whatever yeah, yeah and some you know the, the bank stuff is really good they, you know they do some real engineering but a lot of the stuff is you know it, it it'll take away certain safeties uh, and you know then it's just it's it, then they start unraveling the sweater right taking that yeah. thread and unraveling it and so it's one thing after another and all of a sudden you know they're wondering why their number six cylinder went out well, and that's a perfect segue into one of the things that we wanted to talk about, which is the advantage of buying an OEM, you know, high performance model is because all of that stuff is taken into consideration. You know, the, the in the ways that you can talk about it, like help the listener understand what is the advantage of buying a high performance package from an OEM as opposed to just building it yourself. What are some of the, I mean, what are some of the disadvantages too, maybe? 
Let's see. Um, <clears throat> disadvantages on the surface would be cost because you're having to buy it all at once and, um, and it can definitely seem expensive, right? Because I think, you know, all of us as humans, we, we kid ourselves on what something actually costs when we start modifying it and yeah. chasing down this and that and the other thing. And, you know, and a lot of it we conveniently forget about. Yeah. Right? A lot of those costs we conveniently forget about. So in terms of disadvantages, I would say that's the, that's the number one thing. And then, you know, as a number two, it's like maybe you have a special mission that's different. Uh, maybe you want to do something different, you know, because as like as an aftermarket company, when we're working with the OEM, we are aiming for, you know, the 99% distribution. We don't have the ends, right, of that, you know, we have a standard deviation. Right? Sure. We don't have the ends of that. So, you know, it, there are customers that what we build may not work for them. Yeah. Right. And so highly specialized scenarios. Yeah. yeah highly specialized or, you know, and, and some of it's opinion, right? I mean, yep. keep in mind our AEV's typical customer, like let's say with a Wrangler is somebody who's already tried to build three Wranglers. Yeah. At least, you know, typically it's three. And at this point they're like, I just want to, I don't want to, I don't want to play with it. <laughs> I, I want, just it, want to it to work. work. And I just, I don't want to turn wrenches. I just want it to. Yeah. It's are three. You three? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. True. And so, and, and that's, you know, and that's, that's our typical customer. Sure. They've been there, done that. Now they just want to like use the car. Cause there's, there's a hobby in itself of modifying the car and seeing yeah. what works and what doesn't. And then, which can be fun in and of itself. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, and then there's also, you know, I want something with all the factory engineering that just works. And, know, a and a warranty. And for a lot of, a lot of people that they can get a lower interest rate on the total vehicle, as opposed to what they would pay for their credit card bill if they were buying winches and bumpers and I think, stuff. I think there's also just, as somebody who's learned this the hard way, there's also the time cost, I yeah. think, of of <laughs> my Gladiator, for example, was all AEV outfitted, but I had to deal with all of that. And if I added up what I spent at the local four-wheel drive shop at, you know, depending where you are in the country, that's between 125 to $200 an hour for that labor cost. And then your time and effort of having to pick this thing up. And granted, it was a fun project. Yeah. But just, I mean, maybe it's a from a place of privilege, but just being able to write the check and being done with it. I was able to enjoy that vehicle from day one versus having to have this build process over. You, you mean when you had three, the prospector, you were just able to enjoy it? I was just able one, to yeah. enjoy it. Yeah. And it was done. Yeah, and, and I would say it's so it's easier to talk about the advantages because the advantages to a consumer is you get an amount of engineering. Like when we do something with the OE, it even surpasses like what we would normally do as AEV because we have all these internal what I'll call customers within GM or Jeep or Chrysler, you know, whatever. We have these internal customers that we have to answer to, right? So you have to, you know, like these aftermarket bumpers that you may go buy, they definitely haven't been through crash. They definitely haven't been through cooling testing. You know, they definitely haven't been through modal, which is like the frequency that it resonates at and can cause major problems with, you know, frame cracking and um, just performance in general. Mm -hmm. um, they definitely haven't been through corrosion testing. You know, all these things, um, you know, sensors. I mean, especially it's getting more and more as, as, you know, as we go on in the future with all this autonomous driving and the sensor packs required. I mean, you may have 
three sense three radars you'll have six ultrasonic sensors you may have you know three cameras up front i mean this is just like average stuff wow. I mean, average sensor pack is is getting pretty extreme and mm. then you're trying to you know guess what those sensors want to be right where your winch is right where mm. your tow hooks are yeah, and so um, many people are just like oh well, i don't care about that stuff but it's actually really nice to have well it is and nice there's to more have. than just the active cruise control that people think it is as well yeah but you know also as a as a consumer i mean you could be held liable like with this autonomous driving if you go and modify it and it's not up to up to standards um you know Rear park sensors, do they work in aftermarket bumpers? Yeah, they do. Have they been tested? You know, do they really meet the criteria? No, they just don't set a code and that works. That's, yeah. that, you know, most aftermarket says, okay, well, that, that works. Yeah. It doesn't really meet the actual, like, government stated criteria, which there is. Mm. Um, you know, we're always we're always having to deal with that. You know, I mean, block heater plugs. I mean, there's... there's oh, like, the there's, there's, block heater plug that's on the 2500 HD? <laughs> so cool when it has its own little... It's own little port and flap and everything. That isn't the winch controller. <laughs> no, it's a block heater plug. Uh, yeah, yeah, I saw it. yeah, yeah. But it's interesting, you know. Even those, you end up just getting a lot more engineering. You know, there's some stuff that doesn't matter. Yeah. In in cer certain ways, like where that does that block heater go, right? That does yeah. matter for our internal customers. You know, for the guys putting it on, guys and gals, I should say, putting it on on the plant. You know, whether that thing comes in on the bumper, whether it doesn't. You know. Can somebody install it? The ergonomics, you know, are they going to get carpal tunnel? Like we have to design around that stuff. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't really matter for an end consumer necessarily. Um, but there is a lot of stuff that does matter for the end consumer, like weight, like modal, like cooling, corrosion. Um, Especially corrosion. I mean, corrosion's a big one. I mean, yeah. we provide, we have to provide a, um, I guess it's like the equivalent of a 15 year corrosion warranty. So, you know, all that stuff has to go in and get tested, you know, it gets tested with gravel and for creep and there's all kinds of testing that, you know, the aftermarket couldn't afford to do. Yeah. Crash testing is a good one. I mean, yeah. you know, I think it's like, and this is going back a number of years, but the last time I saw the numbers, it was like a million dollars to set up one test. There's 11 tests required, you know, to, to meet compliance. And you do that wow. first and that that's like the small portion of it cost wise. I mean, cause we're doing it all in the computer simulated first. And again, I can't talk about current stuff, but on the old stuff, I mean, we could see, you know, like where an unbelted, we have to test for an unbelted passenger, right? So you think about that, it's state law that you have to wear your seatbelt, but we still have to test for unbelted passengers. And we had an issue where like the sun visor, the bumper was going down on an impact because of how it was mounted and the, uh, the truck was going up. No, vice versa. I'm sorry. The bumper went up and the truck went down and the unbelted passenger was hitting the sun visor and it would put load into the neck. And so we had to like readjust how the bumper was mounted. So the bumper would go the other direction. The bumper would go <laughs> down and the truck would go up and clear the guy's head. I mean, so there's stuff like that that you, you, you never know, consider. And, and yeah, you never consider it. Um, but, but there's a lot to it, you know, and there's, there's really a lot. And I got to give, you know, a lot of the, the companies that are trying to do this, the OEMs, a lot of credit because um, to do, especially like a front bumper, um, takes a lot. I mean, mm. a lot of extra work. And there's, and it's not just like, you know, AEV doesn't just show up with this bumper design and give it to GM or Jeep or whoever and say, you know, here you go. I mean, there's thousands of people on on those OE side who are putting a lot of effort in engineering and feedback and saying this works with our truck, this doesn't. 
Um, and, and it's like, it's a lot of, um, there's, I mean, you should give credit where credit's due. These OEs are really um, going out of their way. It would be so easy to for them to just say no. I mean, you talk eleven million dollars in, in testing for a bumper with these eleven tests. Yeah, or you end up you with know, a full truck without tow hooks on the front because it was probably just easier. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it is, and so so there's a lot of people who are putting a lot of effort into this stuff for the consumer, right? The consumer is the one that really benefits. I mean, yes, these companies are all in competition with each other; they're all in competition for these consumers. So, at the end of the day, though, the consumers. I mean, just look at the Rubicon. What a you know, boon it's been for the, on the consumer side that yes. you can buy, you know, a vehicle like this or the new Bison. I mean, if, if, you know, speaking of like the new stuff, if you look at the new mid-sized Colorado Bison or GMC Canyon, I mean, that thing's nuts. I mean, it's got everything you could have ever asked for, you know? Yeah. You and I would have thought we like died and went to heaven to get a 35 inch stock, 35s winch. Front and rear lockers, Multi, like multimatic, <laughs> multimatic bump stops. I mean, that's yeah. basically the, the bump same. stops were the big game changer for for me. It's essentially the same suspension Chad Hall's team has been racing for a couple of years, right? And that truck's finished every best in the desert series. Um, I mean, that's pretty impressive. And you can go buy it. It's factory lift. Um, it's got bumpers front and rear with steel and you know corners and all the boron steel skid plates. Yeah, and those those skid plates. Honestly, that boron steel is the best material for making skid plates out of. Uh, it's it's impressive how thin it is yeah. for how strong it is. Yeah, and I've been wanting to figure out how I could afford to make them for the you know for dirt bikes because or you could know, you imagine dual sport bikes? Yeah, it, it slides so well over the rocks. It's so hard. You know, it's a press hardened steel, so it's really hard. So when you when you slide on it, it doesn't slide like aluminum or plastic. I mean. Where it hangs up, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, because those things all gouge, yep. right? And it's like, they're second to maybe wood, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like a terrible material. And, and steel's too heavy, right? But, yeah. But the boron steel, it's really... Uh, I remember... It's just, it's just such a good material. At your, at your facility in Michigan, you guys have, like, Chad Hall's yeah, skid plate. Skid. Differential, differential skid. Differential skid, yeah. I mean, there is not, a, not an ounce of paint left on this thing. Right. But... There's, I remember, like, there was only a couple very light gouges, probably from hitting something monstrous. Well, and you think about it, he he goes after the trophy trucks, after yeah. the trucks with 40s. Yeah. You know, those trucks are 42s now, right? He's got 35s, and he's dragging that thing. And I think that was two seasons, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Um, yeah, we got that back just to show. We clear-coated it, right, to show. It's awesome. That. But, yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's That thing ama- was literally drugged for hundreds of miles through the yeah. desert. yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you, because I think it's, it's, it's interesting, is on your bumpers, you use, if I'm getting this correct, they're iron, nodular iron recovery points? Some, yeah. Now, now what, and it looks like it's a, it's a whole separate part of the bumper, and why do you go with those? And it looks like they even function as a skid a little bit. What are some of the advantage of that kind of a recovery point? The, it, well... And, and it's not all are nodular iron that look like they may be. Like, for instance, the first-generation Colorado rear bumper was actually aluminum. Okay. Um, Half-ton Ram was aluminum, but okay. it was a cast aluminum. It was a, a very strong alloy, um, and we did those for weight, mm. right? Um, but, with, but in general, with a casting, uh, just the material properties end up being very stiff. Mm. And so it ends up, the way when we mount it to a bumper, it ends up spreading the load 
in such a way that it, it can spread the load um, more effectively than if we just went with like uh, you plate, know plate yeah, steel or something. had some plate steel in there yeah um, and then there's the advantage you know it ends up looking cool they look um, super cool but the, yeah. the original like when we first did them on the ram it was really to get that load spread out um, and and it just works you know and we're doing more and more castings the problem with castings they can be really heavy so you know today uh, we're doing a lot of um, what's called topology optimization so we can really place the material where we need to be but end up with a really rigid part wow um, so if you think about um, like a winch mount for instance if it's made out of plate steel um, it could yield just like on one frame rail right if you're just pulling on one tow hook on the side of a winch mount but when it's a casting it's so rigid that it'll start pulling on the other side too and so we can really spread the load through you know even if it's a really asymmetrical pull we can spread the load through both frame rails hmm. and and that's kind of one of the big problems with a lot of these trucks is especially for us coming in on something that you know the truck already exists right so we're trying to make a frame rail that was never designed it was designed to be pushed on you know, or designed to hold the load from top, but it really was never designed to be pulled on. Ah. And so that can be a real struggle is how to get these load paths through the frame rails. And, and that's another good thing. Just knowing what I know now, um, a lot of the aftermarket doesn't necessarily get it right. Yeah. Right. When you, it, like I can look at almost, you know, I can look at most bumpers and be like, I can know what problems we had with the actual structural data and, and know like, 90% of these things, you know, aren't going to, they would never pass either. Yeah. You know, they'd never pass because we had to go back and do things. Um, and, you know, getting back to that modal, uh, you know, you've been like, you've had uh, the experience of you getting just the right speed and frequency on a washboard and the whole truck lights up. Well, like if you watch that on slow motion camera, I mean, the whole truck would look like a noodle. And, and yeah, you'd see yeah. these things that are amazingly stiff and all of a sudden it, it'll start flexing and you can start, you know, hitting bumpers to headlights, um, you know, whatever it may be. Um, or you can, you know, start doing frame damage because this bumper, which may, may weigh a hundred pounds or even more when you have a winch in it. And if you get it to light up at the same frequency as the frame, you can have major issues. And so like, that's part of the, like that's that's a good example of testing that you know sometimes we have to make our bumpers less stiff sometimes mm. we have to make them stiffer sometimes we just have to get them out of the range of what the frame would be or what the truck would ever see frame and suspension mm. and so we do a lot of stuff like that that yeah you've talked about frequency tuning before like even in suspension generally in suspension yeah we do a lot of frequency tuning but um, most most aftermarket <clears throat> suspension companies don't do that i didn't even know about frequency tuning until I talked to Jim friends and he's like, Oh, let me explain how this thing works. Yeah. And it was like, Whoa. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, and, and that's really easy again in the aftermarket, you know, and, and that's like the reason we don't do springs on a Ram is because there's, I think, what did I, what did I come up with? There's 44 front springs on a, on a Ram 2,500 and 18 mm -hmm. rear springs. And you know, as we all know, those OEMs will not spend a penny more than they have to. And yet they've determined that, because of all the configurations of truck, there's 44 front springs are required, 18 rear. There's millions of dollars of engineering in all those springs. They're all set for very specific wheelbases, cab configurations, engine configurations. And th that's a good thing. Like if you go to the aftermarket and you're looking at your company and you're saying, oh, I want, you know, I want a suspension. And, and 
you know, if they only offer you a gas or a diesel spring and maybe one rear spring, you, you know, there's, there's a problem there, right? You're not going to get the best. And again, people have buyer's remorse. So do they make a decision because they make a decision and they'll never, they'll never admit otherwise. And they, maybe they don't know, maybe they've never driven another truck, Yeah. but there's, there's very specific reasons why, you know, logically we choose to do things certain ways, right? On a Jeep, we do provide springs because, you know, but we have two door and four door and we have gas and diesel and uh, four by E, you know, we do have those extra springs. So if you're, you know, if your aftermarket company is not providing different springs for different jobs, not just different heights or a different motor, maybe like in the case of a Ram, you know, that's a good indication that the engineering's not really there. Interesting. Yeah, this has been an awesome conversation. I've I've learned my mind uh, yeah, is exactly. still blown on that one. Yeah. yeah, I've learned a lot in this, Dave. So what I've always wanted to ask you this. What are maybe one or two things, a couple of things that you've learned when you started doing all of this work that you kind of had set in stone, like this is what I believed. And now that you've done all of this with the OEMs, what what have you changed your mind on? Like, what was a big thing that you're like, man, in the beginning, it was all about big tires and now I realize this or, or, uh, what's something that you've really changed your mind on, um, in your, in your own time with your own vehicles hmm. and maybe not, maybe, yeah. <laughs> like, maybe not I mean, like I've, for me, it was full was size right from day one <laughs> for me, it was full size trucks. Like I always had an aversion to them and I never owned one and, and, and now they're so good that, and I enjoyed it changed my mind on them. I think once we started making parts for full-size trucks, I think that started making people look at them a little yeah. bit more because those parts exist. Because, you know, at the end of the day, there are those, there's a lot of people who, it's a hobby, and maybe a full-size truck, they can justify more than a Jeep, and, and now they can have a hobby. Uh, but there's also that, just that added capability. You know, yeah. for us, we started out really involved with Jeep, and then so many people were like, I want to do this, I want to do this. And it, it just, you know, I think it was that one trip where I was like, I want a camper Jeep. Yeah. And I didn't know how to do it with the weight and at the time. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to build a Ram and tow a Jeep. It'll never know it's back there. Right? Yep. Um, the Ram's got a lot of capability because I've been driving Rams around with a, I don't know if you remember this, but I had a 57 foot wedge trailer. I remember. With four Jeeps and I was doing what it took, you know, to get the company off the ground. And I was towing that thing, 32,000 pounds going down the road, right? Way over. I mean, never got, never had any issues with it, you know, legally or that. And I wouldn't recommend it. Every time I, literally every time I pulled out of Missoula, I was like, I wonder if this will be the last time <laughs> that you get you know, a I'm, I'm going to see this because, I mean, it was terrifying driving that thing. I mean, the Ram handled it, right? I had a, you know, Ram dually. I put hundreds of thousand miles on two Ram duallys towing that thing. But it was always terrifying to me towing that much weight, um, you know, going down the freeway. But, I did realize on the other hand, like this truck can handle four Jeeps on it. You know, one over the roof and three on the back of the wedge. And, you know, it never complained, right? I mean, I warped one exhaust manifold because I was, it was a manual and you could do that then, right? It would, it would allow you to overpower it. Um, but I just realized how much capability those trucks had, you know, and I, again, do not recommend that for anybody. <laughs> um, but... Um, yeah, but again, you were trying to make a go of it, like yeah, oh yeah, the, like I'm the here. risks that you've ta I've seen you take. Yeah, you, yeah, you have to take as risks a, too. As an entrepreneur, you have to go all in. Yeah, and I've always been kind of a high risk, high reward guy, but I always try and really apply logic and talk it over and you know talk out loud and and you know my partner has a great uh, saying about believing your own bullshit. Yeah, and so we try not to believe our own bullshit. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't believe your own press releases. Don't believe the, your own press release. That's right. Yeah. That's like number one. Um, and so that's, that's always kind of really steered us right and steered us to make decisions that aren't necessarily always um, favorable to our competition. Right. Yeah. We're generally more conservative um, in our claims. And that's that's always a frustration for me because, you know, there are other companies that will just come out, say whatever. Yeah. And it's funny because I could sit there. This is a good thing about or a funny thing about consumers. And I'll, I'll talk about this for a second. But one of the things that frustrates me a lot is I can I can walk somebody through all the logical decisions. This must be true. This must be true. This must be true. This is why. And I can sit with somebody for three hours and one of my competitors can come in and say, no, mine's better. And literally, if a customer wants to believe that one's better yeah, or, sure. or they think that, you know, because I will tell somebody this is not going to work for you. This is not, you know, our suspension is not the equivalent of a trophy truck. Yeah. Right. Which is not. But it yep. also, you know, does goes down the road different. But um, but if, if I have a competitor come in and be like, oh, yeah, you know, we can blast through the Baja at 100 miles an hour. And that's what the customer wants to believe. They will literally believe that even though I can prove in 12 different ways why that's not the case. And why, you know, physics doesn't lie and physics doesn't change for one guy versus another. Yep. But it's really interesting from a consumer standpoint, you know, there are consumers that just, they, if they if they already have their mindset on something, they want to believe it, it, it's almost not even worth me spending my, I mean, it's not worth me spending my time to go through it with those, yeah. those folks, right? They're, they're the ones that'll come back after two more vehicles, they'll come back and say, okay, yeah. you know, now I just want to. And, and that's why these conversations matter so important, right? Yeah. Is for us to to try to get out as much quality information as we can, so people can make their own their own decision. But also recognizing that we're we're in the golden era of overland vehicles. Who would have thought that in 2023 we'd have this many options? Like GMCs, GMC midsizes with 35s yeah. and lockers. Hey, that, that, you know, that one's probably the most surprising. The most surprising. Absolute yeah. shocker. It, or 392 it always, it always Wranglers. It blows my mind when people say, you know, oh, they don't make four-wheel drives like they used to. And it's like, <laughs> what? They don't make them ride like <laughs> <laughs> they don't make them slow with bad gas mileage and no suspension articulation. That's right. And rust out in 10 years. Yeah. 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 yeah they're better than they've ever been. It's unbelievable. And I'll tell you, I've been on some testing um, with some of the GM vehicles and some of the stuff that I've seen done with those things is um, unbelievable. You know, and GM is so conservative. They will never show a photo. There's photos that exist. I think I've shown you some of them. But I mean, what those trucks will do. Uh, repetitively is just mind blowing, and and again, GM's so conservative; they won't show a picture of of a tire one inch off the ground, right? They'll. Yeah, I had to go through a lot of permissions because when we when we went out to the first drive on that thirty five inch tire truck, the the can the new Canyon, they were jumping it off this tabletop jump. Yep. And I'm like, we got to show, and they're like, well, yeah, <laughs> back and forth and back, and finally they're like, yeah, you can you can show it and whatever you know whatever height they were jumping i've probably seen it five feet higher right <laughs> yeah. and, and it's just like it, it was crazy. awesome like something that you would never do with a you know not a built race truck yeah uh, but i've seen them do it in the you know granted in the right conditions and yeah and professional place, drivers and everything professional sure drivers and doing it safely but it's just it's mind-boggling that you can take a vehicle that you can go buy right now and do what i've seen them do you know <laughs> or even in terms of rock crawling because you know, and it's different, like independent suspension. You know, it's it's for me, it's really weird um, because I'm so used to solid axle trucks. Sure. But what I've, 
you know, and, and I'm not as comfortable driving a, a independent suspension in, in serious rocks, but they, they, you know, they will do it and, and they will, um, there's different lines. So I'm having to retrain myself sure. now that I'm driving, um, now that I'm driving a Chevy, but it's kind of, it's fun. But it's just, it is amazing what they'll do and what people, you know, compared to what people's perception is. Yeah. Um, and like that HD, the new Chevy HD, the GMC HD, I mean, it is a comfortable truck that'll. So quiet inside. It, I couldn't believe it. Do a lot. Yeah. I yeah. couldn't believe it's, how capable it was. It's really impressive. We it's took a, it on our hardest test loop and it was like nothing. Nothing, yeah. Nothing. Yeah. And, we, and so we're working on a kit for 37s on that thing, which Sweet. is. Sweet. That'll be, you know, that'll be really cool. Like it's cool on 35s, it's going to be really. To me, you know, like what I do, it's going to be really nice with that. I, I like that truck on 35s. Like having had the PXL before, it's a little big for, for like. Yeah, you had a PXL. PXL. Yeah. It's a little big where where I look at like this this 2500 HD and yeah. I'm like, that is that is the just right. And it's like a luxury car on the inside. Yeah. It's shockingly it's comfortable. Really it's nice. super comfortable. They are, yeah, yeah. Well, Dave, I got one more question for you. If you, were, if you had to pick... And if you don't want to answer, we can cut this out later. But if you had to pick between uh, GMC, AEV, regular cab, tray bed, or a Ram, regular cab, tray bed, which one would you pick? Oh, God. How you, I don't know how you pick on that one. <laughs> uh, it, you know, and, You've it, had them both. Well, I have, to be fair, we didn't, you know, that the GMC we built for SEMA, it's amazing. Um, I've only driven it short distances okay you know it's still a show truck sure that thing does look so good it looks bitching yeah and it, it, you've seen it in person right and, yeah and it's just yeah. like and to think about a 40 inch tire on a gmc yeah like because to me it was on that was on a know, my, my brain still like 10 years ago when i thought gmc was like this old man chrome yeah. shiny mm. it didn't even Denali. really yeah, yeah i don't really like to me a gmc never hit my radar and then to see that company and the amount of effort their marketing they're taking team, it so seriously. They are their yeah. marketing team and their engineering team. They I mean, care they about are, it. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see. And, and they, you know, they worked with us on that build. And you know, I don't even know if if they really knew. You know, they don't know what's cool necessarily, right? They're depending a lot on us to show them what the guys in the overlanding field will think is cool, yeah. right? Because. You know, a lot of the marketing folks, they, they, they just don't know what they see, which isn't necessarily cutting edge. It's it's like the, you know, the classic rack in the back with some Mac tracks and uh, a roof tent, yeah. a roof sure. tent <laughs> and, you know, the, the basic, you know, the, the starter kit. Right. And so it's pretty interesting to see, you know, they let us go really far with that one on a, you know, on a GMC. It's their baby. Right. Yeah. And, and they're they know the Denali. I mean, they know what makes them money. And so they're really trusting us a lot to do to do stuff like that. And, and I know it was really well received, which was cool. And I think, you know, now they're they, you know, they pick up quick. And so it's it's pretty cool to see, you know, and, and I don't know if we'll ever do something like that for production, but it is pretty exciting. And it really did work well, like in terms of the engineering that that vehicle went together really fast, really easy. Um, you know, there's no suspension changes on that. So that's a stock. Um, what we call ZRX, but that's ZR2 or AT4X. That's the stock, you know, quote unquote, lifted suspension, no modifications, and we were able to fit 40s on with that, with just the flare and some some internal rework of the body. Yeah, know. so cool. 
All right, so we got the non-answer on Ram Ram versus. It's okay. It's okay. I totally get it. I totally because they're both they are different and they're very cool. It's really. I mean, and again, I don't work with Ford at all, but all these trucks are really good. Um, But I think I think right now, I would say Chevy and GMC are really putting the most effort into this market. Yeah, they care about it, and I think they're going to get rewarded for it. And um, and and they're they're doing a good job by not assuming that they're necessarily the experts in this field, right? So they came, you know, I guess not to like toot my own horn, but they came to get the good, you know, they were smart enough to get the good advice Mm. and try and be on the leading edge of the curve, not like not just falling along by putting, um, you know, the requirement, the the quote unquote starter kit on, like a, you know, a snorkel and a rack. Sure. Yeah, it's not cheesy stuff. You no, know, it's like the real it, deal. Yeah. Right? It's a real it, deal. It can really work for it. it works for folks. And I kind of get what you're saying. Where where GM kind of came from is, in a way, I expected them to do some cheesy stuff, and they didn't. And they didn't. They didn't. They crushed it. Yeah. Yeah, like yep. most improved brand for what we do. <laughs> Out of nowhere. Like. Like in a matter of well, like I don't think anybody has made such a huge like no. leap forward. Like I, daddy drove Fords. Yeah. So. <laughs> Like I've never been a, a a a GM guy, right? And I'm like, when the 2500 was here, I'm like, yep, yep. That's what I thought. Yeah. I mean, think about it. The AT4 didn't start until 2019. Yeah, yeah. That is that is like a blip in automotive history. Yeah. yeah like it's a heartbeat, one heartbeat, and we're already got AT4X, AEV, Bison, you know, insanity. Well, I so. think a lot of that goes back to the. You know, the original Colorado is a group of, you know, kind of like the Rubicon, right? It's a, a small group of enthusiast engineers kind of started putting it together. Gradually, more and more people latched on until now. They're like, wait a second. This is, that was really good. Now we can, let's spread this out. Let's, let's, let's make these all, mm. you know, let's make, let's, there's a whole market that we're not hitting. And so for them, it was, it was good and they're paying yeah. attention. And, um, you know, and there's other manufacturers that are paying attention to what they're doing. That's that's the cool thing is like what will the responses be? Yeah. You know? Well, and, and there's always lag because unfortunately, even though manufacturers may want to respond right away, yeah, it takes time. You takes can't time. always do that. Yeah. Right? Your your chassis may not be set up for it. You know, if you look at the new Colorado, uh, they actually moved the wheel forward three inches, and that was a big part of that was to enable the 35s. Right? Yeah. And, and you can't just move a wheel forward three inches, right? No. It takes a while. Yeah. Um, it takes a lot of money and a lot of investment and a lot of time. And, and people's willingness to, to do the extra work. Yeah. Um, and so that's one thing I'll say about GM. I mean, everybody there is really, you don't really get like, oh, that's not my job or, you know, why I've never are we doing heard this? it. Yeah, I've never I heard mean, it. I mean, they're really. They really care about it. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of. Um, Genuinely care about yeah. overlanding. And a lot of them are overlanders. They're excited about doing it. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's really, it's fun to see. And it is fun to see what the response will be because I think those trucks are really, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're good and they're just, everything's getting better and better yeah. and better. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and Dave, it's been fun to see you and your company be so successful and do such good work. I mean, 20 years we've known each other almost. Mm-hmm. So it's just been really awesome to see you and your team just crush it. So yeah, and we do have a good team. Yeah. Uh, it takes that for sure. Yeah. We have a good team and it's, it's, it is, it's complex work. You know, you're yeah. trying to remember every little detail and, and I've got, um, I mean, the team we have now is awesome and we're adding to it all the time. 
but it's uh, yeah. I can't wait to see what you do next. Yeah, well, we're, oh, we're, we'll get you back on the podcast when the next surprise yeah. from from AEV drops. So yeah. yeah, or maybe sooner. Yeah, awesome, man. Well, Dave, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Appreciate and we'll it. And we'll talk to you all next time.